Will you please turn with me in your Bibles one final time this morning to the 13th chapter of the letter written to the Hebrews where we will be reading verses 20 through 25. That is Hebrews 13 beginning with verse 20 reading through the end of the letter this morning which ends with verse 25 and is found on page 1183 in your pew Bibles. Well, this morning we are wrapping up what has indeed been a rather lengthy look together at this wonderful Christ-exalting epistle of sacred scripture. Believe it or not, this is the 66th sermon in this series, and except for just a couple of brief interludes throughout the year, we have been immersed in this letter for a little over a year and a half now. And beloved, it certainly is my hope that it has been as challenging and as edifying to you as it has been for me. I think if nothing else, we have seen the very important place that this particular epistle has within the canon of sacred writ. We've also seen the tragedy that exists when the church avoids what is given to us here for the nourishment of our souls. Beloved, it is here in this letter that we see the progressive nature of the revelation of Almighty God, moving us from the shadows of the law in the prophets towards their substance in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's here in this letter written to the Hebrews that we begin to gain a more thorough understanding of what Jesus actually did that day following his resurrection as he walked with a couple of his disciples along the road to Emmaus. Luke tells us in chapter 24 of his gospel account how as Jesus walked with them, these disciples were sort of marveling aloud to Jesus whom they did not recognize, of course, about the things that had only just taken place in and around Jerusalem. And how the tomb where Jesus' body had been laid to rest had been found empty on the third day from his death upon the cross. And Jesus answers them, beginning in verse 25 of that 24th chapter of Luke, saying, O foolish ones! And slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Beloved, indeed, that has been the approach of the shepherd of this flock of Jewish converts to Christianity in this letter. These struggling Jewish converts who had been comforted by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ were now, we are told, wavering under the heavy hand of persecution and very real suffering. They were now wavering between what they knew to be true of Jesus Christ and to return into the shadows of Judaism. And so this loving shepherd opens up to them 
the true glory of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Taking them back through the storied history of their own people, he shows them how Jesus came and how he fulfilled all that was shadowed in the laws and the prophets. It is only in the person and work of Jesus Christ that they can actually begin to understand the depths of God's mercy and have light shed upon every aspect of his law. One of the themes that rings clear in this letter is Jesus was and is the ultimate revelation. We know that Jesus was the ultimate high priest. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. He and he alone ushered in a better covenant. His blood was far richer, far more effective than all the blood of all the bulls and goats that were ever sacrificed. He points them to the faith of those who had run the race of life before them and how it was ultimately faith in Jesus Christ, the culmination of all of the promises of God working in them that led them to actually persevere to the glory of God. Their whole history was filled with these witnesses to the wonderful faithfulness, not of the people themselves, but of the God Almighty God, to fulfill all that he had promised them. Having laid the foundation of their hope in Jesus Christ, he then shed the glorious light of Jesus Christ upon their own hardships and their sufferings, showing them that even their suffering was rooted in the deep and abiding love that God had for his people. He was molding them. He was conforming them more and more through their trials and difficulties into the image of Jesus Christ and thus preparing them on their pilgrimage through this veil of tears called life for eternity in the glory of heaven. They were no longer those who trembled at the foot of Sinai. They were those who were ever inching towards the glorious homecoming that was to be found at the foot of Zion. He had pointed them to the real fruit of the life that had been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not merely an external righteousness through the ceremony and the shadow of the law, but an internal transformation of the heart, born out of deep gratitude that they had towards Jesus Christ, who himself was the very source of their salvation. Through his perfect blood, he had purchased them. He had brought them out of the bondage of sin and gave to them new and abundant life in him. Now their devotion to Almighty God was, would be witnessed not in their frequent attention to the details and to the rituals of the ceremonial law, but it would be found in their love towards a holy God that would indeed be manifested in their active love towards one another towards their neighbors. They were to find comfort in their fellowship with their fellow heirs, their true brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. They were to obey. They were to find joy in serving alongside of those whom God himself had appointed to feed them the very word of God with. 
And the point of all of it is, of course, that in light of these things, there is no going back. That's his point. There is no going back. You can't go back to the shadow once you have basked in the light of the substance. Once we have beheld Jesus Christ in all of his glory, there could never truly be a desire to go back into the hazy shadows for comfort. They had been given the Holy Spirit with which to see the substance of Jesus above all those shadows. And to go to something less than that would be the highest folly imaginable. We find here in these instructive words that God has so mercifully given to us all that we need in order to come before the Lord and worship Him in spirit and in truth. The Christian life is not simply a pattern of morality. A list of things that we must find the strength to do in order to please God, to earn God's favor, or to appease God's wrath. Rather, the Christian life is lived out joyfully here under the sun. As you and I bask in the grace that has been shed upon us through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We live in a way that brings real glory to God through his equipping us for that wonderful task. Beloved, he's given us everything that is needed in the person and work of Jesus. He forgives our iniquities. He fills us with glorious hope. He carries us through the race of this life, locking our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And ours is simply to bask in his glory. And this morning we see this wonderful message summed up with what I think is perhaps the most glorious, the most deep and rich benediction found in all of sacred scripture. It's one I'm sure you will recognize. So will you please follow along with me in your Bibles as we read the closing words of this letter written to the Hebrews. Again, chapter 13 reading verse 20 through 25. Hear now the word of our Lord. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in a few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for the opportunity that we have in coming together not only to offer up worship and praise, but to sit under the preaching of your word. We pray, Father, this morning that you would open our eyes and ears to this word. We pray that you would give us 
full, allow for us to give our full attention to your word this morning so that hearing it, we might be transformed by it for your glory. Father, we ask these things for your name's sake, and we ask them in Jesus' name, amen. This letter was written to be read aloud as a whole to the beloved sheep that this faithful under-shepherd of the great shepherd so passionately and so clearly loved. It is, in essence, one great sermon from which the flock placed under his charge was to come and to feed. This entire epistle can be read through in an hour's time. And he calls on them here to bear with the word of exhortation that he had written to them in a few words. And beloved, I'll remind you this morning that it is a call upon all of us to do as much. And as I've already mentioned, this benediction in verses 20 and 21 alone serves to bring us into a a much needed meditation upon these words of exhortation that have been served up in order to feed our souls, to nourish our God-given faith to the glory of God. Time will not allow us to fully plummet its depths this morning. However, beloved, I hope at least to whet your appetite for the food that is found here in these two verses, focusing in on just a few aspects of it this morning. And the first thing that I think we need to notice here in this is that in this benediction, the writer is making a plea to God on behalf of his people. It is a prayer for these struggling sheep, a prayer to Almighty God to apply the rich and glorious truths surrounding Jesus Christ to the hearts of the people of God. That word benediction literally means a good word. And as the writer closes with a good word, a prayer for his sheep, I think his purpose in doing so is very clearly seen. This is a prayer that Almighty God would take these words of exhortation, these words that we've been looking at for a year and a half, that He would take these words of exhortation and that He would apply them to the hearts of the readers and the hearers of this letter so that they would, through Jesus Christ alone, alone, stand firm in the faith to the glory of Almighty God. And it's wonderful to see here something that I think really ought to encourage all of us as we undoubtedly struggle through our own fiery trials, our own difficulties in this life. And that is this. Though this writer very clearly has high hopes for these people, he says as much specifically several times through these letters, through this letter, it is not to them that he appeals as he closes his exhortation. Do you see that here? He does not now, having informed them of the truth, say to them, 
Now get out there. You've heard these things. Go and live as you ought to live. There's no call here for them to dig down deep within themselves to pull themselves up by the proverbial bootstraps or simply to knock off any foolish talk of returning to the empty husk of Judaism. He has high hopes for them. But you see, his appeal is not to them to not disappoint him or God, for that matter, with their failure to accomplish these things through their own strength. He has not said, now knowing what you now know, having had your intellect convinced, get out there and do these things. No, his hope is seen here in whom it is that he appeals to for these things to be applied. And beloved, it is gloriously consistent. His appeal, the basis of all of his wonderful, joyful hope for them is to God himself. Who is faithful to do all of these things within us. For his glory. You understand? While the people are most certainly responsible to cling to Jesus Christ alone as he's called them to. To live for the glory of God alone. To persevere in the faith as they run headlong towards Zion. They as well as he himself all lack the much needed power to carry out the very things that God commands. And so this wise and loving shepherd appeals to God himself to apply all that is needed to make his glory and his commands our very source of delight in this life. In order that, we would, that all would be done according to the will of God, for the glory of God. Do you understand? Listen, beloved, it is far easier to at least appear to be obedient. Far easier than it is to actually be obedient. It is far easier to appear to be joyful than it is to be joyful. It is far easier to appear to be loving than it is to be loving. And if appearance were the thing, the writer very well could have appealed to them to make these things happen. But he's not looking for appearances here. Appearances have no substance. They have no power behind them. Appearances do not please the heart of God. He's looking for being here. So his appeal must be to God himself who alone recreates the hearts of men. What will enable you to cease from living as if you were the very center of the universe? To die to self. What will cause you to live for God and for God alone? What will bring you to the place where you love your neighbor actively? 
It will not be your good intentions. Because quite frankly, beloved, you do not have any good intentions apart from the grace of God. Your intention, like the rest of your flesh, is corrupt. The Apostle Paul makes it noticeably clear in his letter written to the Romans in chapter 3 when he says in verses 10 through 12, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. You see, mankind has always tried throughout all of history in vain to accomplish whatever the perceived good is for the masses. And it has always ended in chaos. Though there most certainly has not been a lack of effort. Think of it for just a moment. Even just in the last few centuries, we have had enlightenment, Democracy, communism, fascism, now we are in the very throes of secular humanism. All of them have sought the so-called good of mankind. And all of them have failed, or are continuing to fail, to even come close to ever achieving it. Why? Apart from the grace of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ, apart, with, apart from your union with Him, your good works are filthy rags according to the Word of God. Apart from this grace, there are no good works. There's no good fruit because there's no good trees. Only the grace of God filling you with the knowledge of the gift of eternal life in Jesus will ever produce something good in you. That alone is the fountain from which real good works flow. And it is His work. And so it is to Him that we must fly. And it is to Him that I would tell you the writer of Hebrews indeed does fly. Look at the way in which he addresses God here on behalf of the people of God. He says, now may the God of peace, the God who makes peace with us, it is God who must condescend to us. Again, the words of the Apostle Paul ring true here. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Beloved, we run to the God who makes peace with us. And it's never the other way around. It is his work and our great benefit. And this is, of course, the good news of the gospel that God has made peace with his wayward children. Because he is a God of peace, you and I may live transformed lives through the ministry of Jesus Christ. The God of peace 
who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep. Almighty God, bringing us peace through Jesus Christ, making it effective through raising him up triumphant over the grave on the third day, forever throwing down sin, death, and the devil for those for whom he died, those whose sin he carried and bore upon the cross. Your sin and my sin. He is your only means of peace with God. It was at his death, you understand, that the veil in the temple, that great symbol of access to the throne of grace being barred, being blocked. It was at the death of Christ that very moment of his perfect sacrifice being offered up, his meeting of our debt and satisfying of it in in full, that access to the throne of God's grace was thrown open. We now approach through him with confidence that we will find grace in our time of need. That has been the message throughout this letter. And it's reiterated here. And Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, applying the glorious benefits of that sacrifice to us. He's sanctifying our works, our prayers, our thoughts, and our words before the Father. He's serving as our advocate. The writer calls upon the God of peace to drive us to the very means of that peace. The resurrected, ascended Christ of Almighty God, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. The eternal covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son. When the Son, before the foundation of the world, agreed to come and to be propitiation for our sins, To receive upon himself the very wrath of God being poured out upon him. He lovingly, graciously agreed to come and to be the surety of our salvation. To redeem us as his particular people, to set us apart, to be his glorious bride. He bought us through his blood and he agreed to do so from all eternity. Through his blood, his part in the covenant was fulfilled. It was finished. You and I were bought and paid for. He came into this world. He was born of the Virgin Mary, not to give you simply an example of morality, though he most certainly did that. He was perfectly blameless in the eyes of the law, the holy law of God. But beloved, he did not come simply to prove that obedience could be done. He was perfect. He was spotless under the law in order to perfect his sacrifice. He came to spill his perfect, precious blood because it was exactly what was needed for our salvation. 
We get just a glimpse here of the exceeding sinfulness of our sin, our utter unworthiness to be recipients of this blood. It took the blood of the incarnate Son of God to satisfy for our wickedness. He had to come and He had to suffer and He had to die because of the depths of our sin against the majestic holiness of Almighty God. Our sin is a stench in the nostrils of God. It is far worse than we could ever imagine. Who of us would ever dare to think that our sin is really not that bad? It took the blood of Jesus to clean up the mess that we have made in our sin. How could we ever be so foolish to think that we are for even a moment any better than anyone else who suffers from this same disease. Any self-worth, any self-confidence, self-reliance, self-righteousness is immediately annihilated in light of this blood. Do you understand that? And we see it for what it is. And we cry out to the glory of God. It is to God's glory that He saves wretches like us. We see the boundlessness of God's love for us at the cross. Beloved, do you see the glory here? Do you get a sense through these simple words, the depth of the love that the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ, has for those whom he has made his people? The love that is so evident and is making that covenant with the Father, agreeing to be our surety, agreeing to lay aside His glory and condescend to earth for the express purpose of taking our penalty in our place in order to give us His perfect righteousness as our covering until we are glorified for eternity. How could we respond with anything less than the heartfelt worship that is due our great benefactor? How can we live as anything less than our being inwardly transformed, leading us to be outwardly eternally grateful to the glory of God? How can we long for the shadows When we have, by the grace of God, witnessed the substance, the revelation of Jesus Christ. How can we still fall so easily into the sin that ensnares us? How? Beloved, we do it when we look to something far less than the God of peace in order to find our only comfort in life and in death. Because we in our flesh are far too easily satisfied. We go out and we find a guru. We run to our efforts. We flee to our own petty systems. We try in vain to satisfy for what we are incapable of ever satisfying in this pound of flesh that we wear. We seek any other comfort. 
And the writer of this Christ-exalting letter says, Come to the God of peace through Jesus Christ. He alone is the way and the truth and the life. He alone is the door. He alone is the only way to the Father through the very Spirit of God driving us towards Jesus. He alone bids us to come. And coming, we do not stop there as if now seeing Jesus as the all-sufficient means of our justification before God's judgment throne, that it is now up to us to sort of carry the ball in our sanctification. No. Look at what the writer is saying. He says, Come to the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead through the blood of the everlasting covenant, who absolutely will do what? He will make you complete in every good work to do His will. Working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight. How? Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the full and complete good news. God is sovereign and he does not ever fail. He is God. He delivered upon every single promise in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He equips you for his glory. He makes you into what you must be in order to serve him forever in the glory of heaven. It is His amazing grace that saves us. It is His amazing love that motivates us. It is His to make peace. And He has done so completely through Jesus Christ. That has been the message of this letter from the beginning to the end. And so now we end asking the question that so dogs us in this life. What now? We hear this amazing message of the hope of the gospel. We rejoice in it. And eventually we look heavenward and we say, What now? What's next? Well, beloved, now we must do what we must. We must do what we cannot help but to do. By nature of being recreated in Jesus, we must look to Jesus Christ. We must cling to Jesus Christ by faith. We must trust Jesus Christ. And we offer up the only thing that we now can or even may. Our sacrifices of praise. Right? We praise Him with doxology. We burst forth in praises to this God of peace. We come boldly to the throne of grace. We love the people of God as a direct expression of our love for Him. We can delight in His law. We can revel in His word. We obey because it is our highest joy to obey. What do we do what we have been equipped for through Jesus Christ? His will for us. Namely, 
that we proclaim his glory in all the earth. And having his spirit, which gives us eyes that truly see the glory of our salvation in Jesus, having ears that truly hear the wonderful good news of his gospel, we praise him because truly we can do no other. You understand, beloved, I know I've harped on this point, but I want to be clear. No one, no one is asking you that you come and simply go through the motions and call that piety. No one. That you pay lip service to the God of peace in hopes that your mouthing his praises will somehow be found to be enough. No one is asking that you come and that you do the least of your service. The message here is that you come because seeing the glory of Jesus Christ, you must. You desire to come. Your heart longs to come. Your highest delight is to come together with the people of God. You actively love God's people because you love their God. Do you see? Beloved, as we close this letter, may our worship be fueled by nothing less than every single one of the desires of our hearts being met in full in the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. May it be our highest joy in this life to come and to have these needs met in Jesus. May the words of our mouths be the glorious reflection of this message resonating within our hearts. And beloved, it is my prayer that it will be manifested in our body as we gather to do what we must give vent to our hearts, pouring out worship to God, who because of his unfathomable love for us has made peace with us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, when we understand that, we can with joy pronounce along with the author of this epistle, grace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray.